0: We talk about living a blessed life, and we talk about wanting to uh, know and to live in the blessings of God. Well, what does that actually look like? And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And this is a very practical, very applicable message. Because there's a thought and there's a theme in our minds where we have some preconceived ideas about where we have been and where we're going. We have some thoughts and ideas. You may have said something like this. I've always thought that dot, dot, dot. And sometimes in life, just because you've always thought it doesn't mean that it's true. And you come to a point in your life when you discover that I always thought that dot, dot, dot was wrong. And it's very humbling to have to come before others and before God or even before yourself and say, I was wrong. After almost 20 years of marriage, I'm getting better at it. There's this quote that I came across, and I don't know who said this quote. It says this, Don't cling to a past mistake just because you spent a lot of time making it. And that really hit me hard, thinking, yeah, that's true. Stubborn Michael, I mean, none of you ever met that guy before, but stubborn Michael doesn't like ever admitting, Do you know what? I need to change. I need to change what I always thought that. So what we're going to do when we ask the question of today and we develop the thoughts of today is we're going to build upon this principle. God's forgiveness replaces my sin with blessing. And maybe you've always thought that you have to carry around the past like it's a badge on your chest or a burden on your back year after year, decade after decade. And some of you that are a little bit older, maybe reflecting back upon something and you think, well, you know what? That was 50 years ago that I've been carrying this junk. But according to the scripture, says God's forgiveness replaces my sin with his blessing. That doesn't mean he blesses our sin. It means he removes and forgives our sin and replaces it with his blessing. We're going to look at a man named David. And there's an underlying theme of this series of Life lesson from Psalms where we're asking a question, and the question is, how do I remain sane in an insane world? Which is a universal question every single one of us needs to ask often. How can I possibly remain sane when absolutely everything in the world around us is going topsy-turvy and wrong is seen as right and right is seen as wrong and we don't know who we are, we don't know what we are, we don't know where we've been and we don't know where we're going. How can I possibly remain sane? And we're looking at different Psalms and we're seeking to apply the principles from those Psalms in our lives today. And many of these Psalms were written 3,000 plus years ago and they're still incredibly applicable in our modern world. Today, We're looking at the life this morning of a man named David. Now David certainly had some incredible highs and he had some serious lows. Psalm 32 is one of what's known as, and I'm expanding your word power today, penitential psalms it's one of seven penitential psalms i told you i'm expanding your word power and these are psalms that are written in a time of grief in david's life when he's writing and saying god forgive me of my sinfulness forgive me i have done wrong and as we look at david's life he certainly did wrong And this particular circumstance is recorded in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter number 11, and also in chapter number 12. And I'm not going to go into a a great deal of detail, but I'm going to give you the summary uh, of the story. David was remaining home in his palace while the rest of his troops and his warriors were off to war. And that was very out of character for David. David was a king that would often have led his, his troops into battle. But something was going on in David's life. And in fact, during that time period, the way the scripture describes it is during the time of war. Basically, they would have their harvest season and then they would have their planting season and they would have after between the planting season and the harvest season. They're kind of this extra time in the summertime. So they're like, you know what? Let's go kill some people and they go and they go battle and then they come back after the battle and they have their harvest season and they go into the wintertime. And so it's a time where David should have been out with his troops, but instead he was home, sitting on his palace roof, looking down. And he was, this time, I don't think he was in close fellowship with God because he was letting his mind and his heart go somewhere that would not have gone otherwise. And he sees a young lady on top of her roof down in the valley and... He observes her washing and cleansing herself and he watches her. He doesn't just see her. He watches and then he begins to think about her, Lust after her. He called her up to his palace. He had relations with her and she left thinking that was the end. That was just a little fling. And she sends word back that she says, David, I'm pregnant. And all the, uh uh-oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? begins to go through his mind, and David calls Bathsheba's husband back from the battle because he was an honorable man, and he was actually one of David's mighty warriors, and he calls him back for a report, and he tries to get Uriah drunk and to go back and to spend the night with his wife to try to cover up all his sins, and Uriah was honorable, and he basically says, no, I'm going to go sleep in the gate because our men are out there in battle. So therefore, I'm not going to go in and enjoy the comforts of home. And that begins to work in David's mind, thinking, how am I going to get out of this? That's strike one, strike two. What am I going to do? And he sends Uriah back to his general with word from the king, carrying a message that ultimately condemns Uriah to death. He he made Uriah carry his own message of death. And he goes, and Uriah is killed in battle because of the way that strategically put him in the wrong place at the wrong time to, to have him killed. Then after that, David mourns for Uriah's loss. And then after a period of time, takes Bathsheba as his own wife, and a child is born a time later. That's what's taking place during this time. That leads us into the next chapter, in chapter number 12 of 2 Samuel, where the God is working in the life of a man named Nathan, who's a prophet. And God brought Nathan at the right time, and David was carrying around this burden, this guilt, thinking to himself, I've always thought that I can work this out myself. And David is told a story by Nathan about a man who had many sheep and great wealth, who steals one single lamb from a family that only had the one lamb. And it was like a family pet. And it was the loved child of their family. Kind of like stealing your favorite dog. And he takes the lamb away and he serves it to guests rather than taking one of his many flock. And that enrages David. And Nathan turns it around and makes a very famous short statement. And I can imagine Nathan, this is just my imagination. The Bible doesn't describe what Nathan, how he does it, but I can imagine Nathan with his finger pointing at David and saying, "You are the man." And at that moment, David hears that all his secret sins of adultery and murder and hiding and lying and all of lie upon lie upon lie was now exposed. And David hears some serious judgment upon him and his family, but he also immediately returns back and says, "God, forgive me." And as a result of that there is consequences for his sinfulness. But God forgives him and restores him from a time where he was very far from God, re- thinking that he had to carry around his sin, carry around his burdens, to the point where he returned back to worshiping God once again. And that's what we see at the end of, of chapter number 12. He's back worshiping God once again, enjoying the blessed life when he was previously living through a time of turmoil. This morning we're going to ask that question, how do I remain sane in an insane world? Let me just answer it for you, so just in case you fall asleep. The answer of how do I remain sane in an insane world is to live forgiven. So let's see how that looks. And there's four different points we have this morning, and we're going to walk through these in a backward way because All of us want to live in the blessings of God. I don't think any of us go, you know what? I really don't want God's blessing on my life. We want the hope and the joy and the peace that comes from our close, intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Well, how do we enjoy the blessings of God? It's through experiencing the forgiveness of god well how do we come to the point of forgiveness well that's through confession and when we confess our sins to god the bible says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness well how do we come to the point of confessing our sins to god well that comes from a thing we none of us enjoy and it doesn't feel good at all it's called conviction and conviction is a wonderful gift given to us by God that tells us when we're doing wrong and it guides us to do what is right. So we go backwards. We, we, we do wrong. We feel the conviction. We feel that burden that I've done wrong. That's God speaking through the Holy Spirit to us. And then we, from that, it leads us into confessing our sins. And from that, we receive and live in the forgiveness of our sins from God. And through that, now we can enjoy the blessings. That's the foundation. Let's build upon that now and get straight into this psalm where we see the first point. The first point is, I want and need God's blessing. That word blessed, if you look at Psalm 32, the very first word is blessed or Blessed. When Jesus used it, it was a beatitude. And this Hebrew word in the Old Testament is exactly, uh, it's actually the same definition of the word that Jesus used in the Greek and the Aramaic in the New Testament when he gave his beatitudes. When he stood outside of the Sea of Galilee with his disciples who he had just recently called to himself and began to teach them a revolutionary sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches and talks about being blessed. That word blessed, do you know what it literally means? Both in Hebrew and other translations, other Hebrew, uh, yeah, other Hebrew words are translated as blessed but have a different definition. But this word, the definition literally is happy. That's what the word blessed means. And oftentimes when we think of blessed, we think blessed and happy means no problems, easy sailing. But do you know what Jesus teaches? when he just recently called his disciples and he was teaching them on the Mount overlooking the Sea of Galilee and he's teaching them for sometimes the first time and they're hearing Jesus teach. He teaches a revolutionary sermon talking about being happy. And he says, do you want to be happy? Imagine all these men going, yes, I want to be happy. I absolutely want to be happy. And I think we asked every single one of you, do you want to be happy? You go, of course I want to be happy. Well, do you know what Jesus says? Matthew chapter five. Verses 13 through 11. I'm going to read the Beatitudes. He says, Happy or blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a humble. You want to be happy? humble? I don't want to be humble, but I want to be happy. What it says here, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, Jesus had just called his disciples, and this is some of the first teaching he's teaching them. And he says, you want to be happy? Basically, do everything the opposite of what the natural world of happiness is. And in our world today, we go back to Psalm 32. We often think, I want to be happy means no problem, no feeling of conviction. No feeling of guilt. I can do whatever I want without consequences because that's my definition of happiness. Well, in 1994, there was a movie that came out called The Lion King. And you probably could sing the song Akuna Matata. And we have an entire generation of people who have been taught that song of Akuna Matata It means no worries for the rest of your days. It's our problem-free philosophy, Akuna matata. We we have a philosophy in our life saying, you know what, happiness means no problems, no worries. Just bury them deeper. If I ignore my problems long enough, eventually they'll go away. And how is that working out for you? The beginning of Psalm 32 begins with, blessed you want to be happy and it goes on to verse number 11 and it gives us what it looks like in our life and verse 11 says be glad in the lord and rejoice O righteous and shout for joy all you upright in heart so the attributes of the blessed life are the fact that we're the happy person is that in the lord we are glad we rejoice we shout for joy See, we all want and need God's blessing. We all want to be happy in this life. Well, let's move on from that. And we see, oh, well, how can I experience God's blessing? Well, then that we have the second point, which is forgiveness. How do I experience God's blessing? It's to be forgiven by God. And not to carry around the burdens of our past sins, but to pass them over to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus' Beatitudes, now we have a David Beatitude. And we see in verses 1 and 2, it talks about happy are the forgiven. I'm going to contrast that with another word of blessed. In Psalm chapter number 1, verse number 1, is the very beginning of the Psalms. It talks about an ideal situation, and it talks about being blessed. And this is something that we can all aspire to in Psalm 1, is something we look at and go, that's who I want to be. Where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We look at that and go, that's exactly where I want to be. But are you? No. In fact... I I've often have done wrong. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Well, I'm often influenced by others that are not godly. I often participate in sinful behavior. I often lead others to do wrong as well. And we look at that verse and we go, that's the blessed are the obedient. Well, Psalm 32 is a blessed are the disobedient or the formerly disobedient, and now forgiven. And what we see in Psalm 32, I'm going to read the first two verses. It says this, Blessed is the one in whose transgressions is forgiven whose sin is covered blessed is the man against whom the lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit i'm going to go through this point very quickly there's a number of scriptures written in your bulletin underneath this point because there's some wonderful truth that we find here because we have some words that describe our behavior but i'm going to let god speak to you here but you start defining these words you see the word transgression literally means to crossing, crossing over a line. But it's more than just I accidentally, it's actually willfully I'm going to cross that line. We see that with David. He willfully saw what he should not have seen. And he didn't just see it and go, oh, I shouldn't have seen that. He willfully saw it and looked upon it and began to think about it and then act upon it. That's the transgression there. And then we have the word sin. The word sin literally means, now oftentimes if you're asking your kids, what does sin mean? They go, disobeying your parents, which is true, especially for my kids. But the word sin literally means to miss the mark. God's standard is absolute perfection. Anything outside of that is missing the mark. So anything that we do that is outside of exactly what God has called us to do can be described as as sin. We have the word iniquity. Iniquity literally means to be twisted and perverse. And we have the word deceit, which is the word of deception. And we not just deceive others, we begin to deceive ourselves going, you know what? It's not that bad. I can get away with it. It's not hurting anyone. And we look at those words, and I'm going to reread verses 1 and 2 again, but there's going to be different words underlined on the screen for you this time. And we have some words that are wonderful. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity in whose spirit there is no deceit you see in the scripture what we have here is a wonderful privilege to live a life of happiness in our relationship with god through jesus christ but it comes about because of exactly what he has done for us and this is where we begin to change our mind A changing of our mind, saying, I've always thought that. But you know what? It turns it around and goes, you know what? I've always thought that I had to carry these things around myself. I always thought that I had to be good enough or I had to do enough. I had to pay the price, but it's all been paid by Jesus Christ. I'm going to read a number of scriptures, and these are all encouraging scriptures for you. Hebrews chapter number 9, verse 11 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Who shed his blood for us? It was Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. And Jesus Christ became the final sacrifice for the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future. And as, we, as he shed his blood, he paid the price that we could never pay for our, the forgiveness of our sin. And as a result of that, God, through our forgiveness, begins to look at us differently when we live forgiven. There's some encouraging passages here. In Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, it's, what does God do with our forgiven sin? It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love t- towards those who fear him. As far as, maybe you've heard this saying before, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It goes on in Micah chapter 7, verse 19. It, we have the picture. It says, You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Something amazing there. We see in those verses he says, as far as the east is from the west, I'm going to remove your sin from you. And he's using some hyperbole that says, it's going to be gone. And he says, I'm going to bury it in the deepest part of the ocean where we're never going to find it. And he says there, I'm going to blot it out. Now, we don't have the ability to forget If you punch me in the nose, I will cry. (laughs) And then I'll say, I forgive you, but I'll I'll still flinch next time you come near me and you raise your hand. Because we don't have the ability to forget. Whereas God says, him being God, and this is something that is outside of my mind. I, I don't understand this, but I see what it says and I'm trying to explain it clearly because I don't feel that I can experience this myself but this is a God thing he says I'm going to choose to no longer see the sin that you've committed because it's been forgiven that right there is remarkable he says I'm choosing to forget that now does God know everything yeah we know God knows everything does he chosen to forget absolutely here so when we're bringing up past sins and God will you forgive me he goes God I forgave you of that the first time you asked Why are you asking the 95th time? And it goes on and it says in Colossians chapter number 2, verses 13 and 14, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And maybe you need that visual reminder this morning of the east is from the west the depths of the ocean he blots it out and he chooses to forget whether it's just the fact of your sin has been nailed to the cross and the blood of jesus christ is covering over that sin whatever the visual is that you need these are words of encouragement about how we can be forgiven and it goes on from there and we see well how can i receive this forgiveness we have the blessing. We have forgiveness. Well, how can we receive the forgiveness of our sins? Well, it's through confession. And that's what we see where David is confronted by Nathan the prophet. In 2 Samuel chapter number 12, when he says, You are the man. We often think, well, what, how mean Nathan may have, must have been. Those were the most liberating words David could have possibly heard because he had been trying to carry around this burden all by himself for almost a year. David's quick response, it says in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Going back to Psalm 32, in verse number 5, it says, I acknowledge, that word acknowledge literally means to know and to make known. Notice I'm no longer hiding my sin before God as if God doesn't know. I'm now going to know it and I'm going to make known my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That comes down to admitting that we're sinners and admitting, and that word repentance, which is a turning away. I was going the wrong way. I found out I was going the wrong way, and I have repented of that, and now I'm going to turn 180 degrees, and now I'm going to go the right way. Admitting our sin and repenting of our sin is involved in the confession of our sin. And certainly there needs to be things that, that take place between individuals, but notice David's first and foremost, he says, I have sinned before the Lord. Our sin is first and foremost, not between us and other people. First and foremost, our sin is between us and God. Absolutely, we do we need to make things right with others? 100%. But we have to do it in the right order. Let's get it right between us and God first before we get it before others. In Psalm 51. It gives us the heart of David. And I'm going to read a passage. It's just going to take a minute. But this is a parallel passage of David writing about the same circumstance. And he's writing a a psalm of confession before the Lord. And you imagine the emotion behind this. And he says, for I know. That's exactly the same word that's used in the other psalm that talks about acknowledge to know and to make known it says this for i know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me now i want you to notice some things as i read this i want you to notice the word i me my and then also on the other side you and your so he's talking about himself but he's also talking about god i'm going to try to emphasize those words as I, as i read them and my sin is ever before me against you And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. We see here the progression, where the progression is, I want and need the blessings of god i want to live a life of happiness there's a great barrier and so i need to be and live in the forgiveness of god and how do we find that forgiveness it's through confessing our sin and calling our sin what god calls our sin who had to pay the price for our sin it's jesus christ and how what leads us to this confession it's through conviction and that's our fourth point How does God lead me to confession? It is through conviction. And conviction is something that none of us enjoy the feeling. Now in this passage is verse number 8. Now Bible commentators are a little bit unsure of whose voice this is supposed to be read in. This is either David talking to the next generation which some Bible commentators think that. And other people think this is God speaking, and David's speaking the word of God as if it's speaking for us, and God speaking to him as a, in a conversation. Because it says in verse number 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Let me ask you a question. If this was God speaking here, and God says, I'm going to instruct you, I'm going to teach you the way you should go. I'm going to counsel you with my eye on you. What would God be telling you? What would he be telling you to do? And what would he be telling you to stop doing? And what would he be begin bringing into your heart, into your life? Something I find remarkable and very gracious of God is in, if the moment of our salvation when we can when we ask God to forgive us of our sins and he comes and he saves us and we become what we call Christians and we are saved people, that moment we have the Holy Spirit guiding our lives and at that moment, God doesn't go, okay, are you ready? Boom, and he starts laying out every single sin that we've ever committed that we need to confess. What God does in his graciousness is in time, he brings to our heart and our lives various things. And as a Christian, he begins to convict us of the, the language that we speak, the places that we go, the, the way we use our finances, the way we speak to our spouse, the way we speak to our, our work colleagues, the jokes that we participate in, the, 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 the things that we consume in our bodies, all these various things. But God doesn't go at the moment of our salvation and dump every bit of it on us at once. In time, as we learn and grow and the power of the Holy Spirit becomes stronger in our life, He begins to use a wonderful thing that does not feel good called conviction. There's a lady who has since moved away. She came to know Christ as her Savior in our church, and she was baptized after about four years of being in our church. And when I was sitting with her going over a baptism class that we go through with everybody, I was talking with her. And I said, so what brought you to say yes to being baptized now? Like, you know, know, in a kind way, what took you so long? And she says, Michael, I grew up going to a church where we were christened as as babies, but I had no memory of, of that at all. And she says, I know and I knew that I needed to be baptized. And she says, every single Sunday... I would come to church and in my heart and in my mind, I'll go, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. But I didn't preach on baptism every single Sunday. She goes, I know. You know what that was? That wasn't pressure from the church. That was God saying, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. And you know what the wonderful relief when she finally said, yes, I'll be baptized. The burden was kind of taken off of her and it was a joyful, wonderful day. What a wonderful thing when people are obedient to what God has called them to do. There's a lady named Catherine Power. Catherine Power, back in 1970, was with a group that had the grand idea of overthrowing the U.S. government. She was involved in some serious crimes when they were stealing weapons and they were breaking into places, destroying things around Washington, D.C. And they went up to, to Boston and they robbed a bank in order to get funds for their cause. And as through that, she was the getaway driver. And in that robbery, a police officer was actually killed, shot and killed. He was a father of nine. And as a result of that, Catherine Power was placed on the FBI's most wanted list. The other people in her group were captured and actually went to prison. But she and another lady were on the run. And she ran from one side of the country to the opposite side of the country. She changed her name. She changed the way that she looked. She did absolutely everything. She, She began to just live life. She met a man. She got married. She had a child. She was living life all along, carrying this burden of, I was involved in a murder. She was still on the FBI's most wanted list. And after 23 years, in 1993, she gave herself up. And she was sentenced to prison. She ended up spending only six years in prison before she was released. She was quoted as saying this, because she was originally sentenced to 10 years in prison. Ten years in prison would be better than the prison I have lived for 23 years. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, talking about the conviction of God, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is where it becomes practical. And in verse number nine, it says this. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit of... And bridle, or it will not stay near you. What we're seeing here is a picture, and it basically, David's telling us don't be a mule. So maybe you need that today. And I want you to think through this don't be a horse. And the thought behind this is the horse is impetuous. The horse rushes ahead. It's not considering the consequences of their actions. And David says, that's exactly what I did. I rushed ahead. If I knew all the hurt that I was going to cause, all the hurt I was going to cause myself, the hurt for my entire nation, the hurt for my own family, you continue reading on in 2 Samuel chapter number 13, horrible things take place as a result of David's sin In his family, if he would have only known, would he have gone forward? But he still moved forward in his sin. He says, don't be like me. Don't be a horse. And he goes on and says, don't be a mule. (laughs) Maybe you need that this week. Don't be a mule. Well, the mule, what are they known for? Being stubborn, being obstinate, where David spent almost a year being a mule saying, No one can know. No one can know. No one can know. And that was the worst year of his life. Don't be a horse and don't be a mule. So my encouragement to you this week, you may feel the conviction of God sometime this week where God begins to convict you. And let me encourage you. I want this to be uh, in a positive way a bother to you. I want you to think in your mind, am I being a mule? Am I being a horse? And allow the conviction of God, not the conviction of your pastor, not the conviction of others, but the conviction of God to work in your life, to lead you to confession, to forgiveness, to the blessing and the happiness of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So as you go out this week, we now have a challenge of how we're going to live. God's forgiveness replaces my sin with blessing.